0: Hi, everyone. This is Morgan Phelps with Acuity Brands. Welcome
1: back to the Women in Sustainability Design the Future podcast. We have created this podcast to elevate the voices of women driving sustainable practices in the built environment. We hope you find their stories inspirational and helpful to the work that you do. The hosts for these conversations are industry veterans Lindsey Baker and Kiara Gold. Let's get started. Hi, everyone. Thanks so much for joining us again this week on Women in Sustainability, Design the Future. This is Lindsay. And this is Kira. And yeah, we're, we're back. How are you doing, Kira? How's your week going?
0: My week is going well. It's nice to have good air quality. <laughs> so I'm going to happy about that.
1: <laughs> it's it's weird how much I don't take that for granted. I mean, we're, we've had good air quality for a while now, but I'm... Uh, I still wake up every morning and I'm like
0: yes I can breathe. (laughs) Totally you know it's a thing Um, it is interesting during this season about how you you know and you're making plans or whatever just thinking about that as a factor that you have to consider so I'm yeah it's nice to be able to be outside Um, that really makes a difference Um, so it's good yeah good week. What about you?
1: I'm good. I'm good. I was actually um, just preparing for my class again this week, and I'm, my my head has been in this really fun and weird space. That is, uh, w- we're learning this week about um, urban agriculture, aquaponics, and the sort of role of architecture and agriculture together. Like, that, yeah. You know, and I di- it's not really my thing. It's not like what I think about very often. Um, but it was um, it was super fun. We're actually the students and I are gonna watch one of the recent talks um, that uh, happened at the Carbon Positive Reset Conference. Architecture oh great! Um, There's a a couple of people who presented on urban agriculture and architecture and stuff. And it's, it's just I, it's been a nice reminder to me that. Um, there's some like really creative and weird stuff happening in different corners of our profession and it's fun. So it's, I was just telling my partner, like I didn't really imagine that I would be having a conversation about the benefits of leafy greens in a, <laughs> in a class about great. climate change and architecture, but here we are <laughs> and I'm super, so, you know, I'm in a an optimistic mode, uh, I suppose. That's great, yeah, that's yeah. great.
0: I feel like that kind of thing um, is sort of the antidote to the anxiety, the various types of anxiety that are going around right now. Public health anxiety, climate anxiety, democracy anxiety, all of that stuff, you know, forward momentum and connection and like positive solutions like that are really um, a powerful uh, contrast to all that stress.
1: Totally. Yeah. And I mean, it's a, it's a funny thing. Like obviously as you would not be surprised to hear a lot of the class uh, we, we try to think about and keep in the center of our minds, these questions about what architecture can and cannot solve. And so a lot of the conversation is going to be like, all right, how many plants can we really grow in a building? You know, like what, what is that really going to, can we actually um, support an entire city of people? Through these kinds of, you know, vertical farms and things. Um, so, yeah. so it's not that I I want to make sure listeners like who might be thinking like, wow, Lindsay's son- suddenly become a, a w- weirdly optimistic about some facet of <laughs> of, of uh, climate solutions. It, it's it's not so much that. It's just that it's nice to be reminded of the creativity of humanity sure. and like things that people are thinking about. You know. Um, Absolutely. And, yeah i think i need that sometimes
0: (laughs) well i think it's important too because so often you know in architecture we think so so in such a limited way about the building and not even in a very expansive or creative way about the entire site when in fact you know site considerations have a lot to do with carbon sequestration there's so much opportunity there Um, it's just it's just a little bit of a different way to think about I mean, I think architecture too often just means building, right? The yeah. building, not even yeah. buildings. Um, so thinking about things in a collective and also all of the opportunities that a site and a district have in that regard. So there's a lot yeah. there.
1: Yeah, there is a lot there. Yeah, it just reminds me about these other things we've been talking about in my in my class. Actually, last week, we watched this incredibly powerful movie, Beasts of the Southern Wild, which was, came out a few years ago. I'm not sure if you've seen it, but it's uh, it's a heard. lot of things. Oh my god, it's a tearjerker. There's, it's, it's a difficult movie. Um, but in any case, um, it is somewhat about climate change. And it is about the built environment. Um, I wouldn't say that's necessarily what the filmmakers were going for. But it, there's a lot there. <laughs> yeah. And we had this conversation about floating houses and like, The potential for resiliency and adaptation that comes from that option. Um, But one of the things that the students brought up that I thought was insightful was like You can tell from this movie when, when people actually go through these types of situations where waters rise and and land is flooded, even if you have a building that you can live in and you're safe in that way the land being gone is really still very fundamentally impactful to your life. And I think it was sort of this reminder of like, I don't know that any of us would actually really want to live in a world in which we all floated on on the water all the time. Land land is an important thing. Indeed. For lots of practical purposes as well as like mental ones. Yes,
0: I think it has something to do with the concept of I mean, the human concept of home. Mm -hmm, Actually, mm -hmm. yeah, that might be actually a good moment to introduce our guest for today, actually, because she's all about the concept of home. (laughs) Yay. We're so excited to have Katie Swenson with us today. Hi, Katie.
2: Hi, Kara. Hi, Lindsay. So glad to be with you.
0: We're delighted that you could join us. Um, I will do a quick introduction before we dig into some questions. Katie is a design leader, a researcher, writer, and expert in affordable housing, community development, and leadership cultivation. Uh, She joined Mass Design Group in February, right before pandemic crazy set in. And before that, she was VP of Design and Sustainability at Enterprise Community Partners, which is a national nonprofit that invests in community development. And she'll tell us more about that organization and all their good work. Um, This fall, Katie has not one, but two new books out, both about love and home in some way, um, both from Schiffer Publishing, Design with Love at Home in America is about the Enterprise Rose Fellowship and In Bohemia, A Memoir of Love, Loss and Kindness is also about architecture and a house's history and so much more. So we're so excited to have you, Katie. Thanks for being here.
2: Really a pleasure. Thank you.
1: Yeah, yeah. Uh, There's so much to talk about, Katie, and I'm just, I'm thrilled to just have your voice and hear your stories. So we just want to dive in and give you the chance to, first of all, give us a picture of you. What drew you to architecture? Um, how? What's your career looked like? How have you made your way? Um, and and I think you know, as a part of that, is would love to just hear about your path with enterprise and why you got involved with that organization in particular. So lots of things. Just tell us about you.
2: Great. Um, thank you. I think maybe I'll start my architecture uh, conversation on a car ride home from New York City to Boston with my older brother. And I had been in New York City pursuing a career in modern dance after graduating from uh, UC Berkeley with a degree in comparative literature where I really began to dance every day and get more and more invested. I'd always been kind of an athlete and a gymnast and a little bit of a dancer, but I dove in deep into that in college and had a chance to live in Paris and then live in New York City, both kind of cities that just really, you know, sparked all of my, I would say, urban design and architectural imagination. But I'd come to New York as a dancer. And um, after about six years here, pounding the pavement, doing incredible projects with collaborators and also working in restaurants, um, being a bartender and doing a lot of renovation projects and uh, working with architects on lofts, designing spaces, um, doing a lot of different kind of work in various crafts. I was at this sort of juncture point in my life and In the car with my brother and he said to me well if you could do anything what would you do and i said well i would be an architect but you know of course it's too late you know i was all of 26 i felt like i had sort of missed that opportunity so um i got home over christmas and got organized and applied to architecture school and started the next fall so that was kind of a major turning point in my life
1: Wow. Yeah. As a reminder to anyone that might be in that, I mean, honestly, 26 seems like so young, especially, I mean, you probably got to architecture school and saw, you know, met people who were older than you. And, um, but it's just that reminder for ourselves that it feels like things are so set in our lives, but they really are not. You
2: know, you know uh, it's absolutely true. And I think somehow you find a way to kind of knit together the pieces of you over time. And, having a lot of diverse pieces of you is a good thing, you know, having different experiences. Um, I would never regret a minute of my life as a modern dancer in New York. But, you know, I also think of these formative experiences that I had in high school. I grew up in the suburbs of Boston and got a chance through an externship uh, program through my high school to work at Rosie's Place, a shelter for homeless women in Boston. And I started there as a junior, went for a jam term, and then um, ended up going back every week through the end of my senior year and got really invested in this very warm and friendly small house in the South End where about a dozen women were able to spend the night on a short-term basis if they needed to, but then there was a large lunchroom, and um, so I was invariably either there preparing or serving lunch or just doing various errands around um, the facility. And you know, I reflect back and think that in the mid '80s homelessness was really reaching this kind of apex. And, and in some ways, we've stayed at this incredibly high rate. But, you know, it wasn't always that way. We didn't always have such a homelessness crisis. But I became, I guess, just so aware of my own uh, privilege of having, you know, a beautiful, safe, wonderful home that my parents had been lucky enough to make for me and understanding the precarity of what happens when you find yourself without a stable home. So I think kind of knitting together, having different experiences, but then maybe knitting them together, ideally through a kind of professional course that can help you build out your perspective. I think that's been one of the real, real honors of my life.
1: Yeah, it makes sense. And it also kind of helps us to understand, like, how it is that you ended up at Enterprise and and what that meant to you to be a part of that type of community. Do you want to tell us a little bit more about that and how it came to be?
2: Absolutely. Um, Enterprise is a national affordable housing and community development nonprofit. Um, they were started in the early 80s by Jim Rouse, who was a, a dynamic, charismatic pioneer who had a real a real goal around improving neighborhoods, bringing back cities and creating racially and economically diverse communities. In the year 2000, uh, one of the board members at Enterprise, Jonathan Rose, proposed a fellowship program called the Enterprise Rose Fellowship. At the time it was named after his father, Fred Rose, who had passed away in 99. And um, the Rose family made an initial seed capital to start a program to recruit architects to work with community development corporations as designers but on the development team. And I was so lucky my, my last year of, um, at UVA uh, for where I was getting my master's degree in architecture, I saw this advertisement for a community architect And I was like, okay, I don't know exactly what a community architect is, but whatever that is, that's what I want to be. And that was kind of the start of my time at Enterprise. We can talk lots more about it, but one of the things that I'll say is that to be an architect working outside of an architecture firm, you know, first for a community development firm, then I worked for a design center, which helped kind of catalyze design thinking more broadly in my town and then working on staff at enterprise really helped me try to understand the system of delivery of affordable housing and how do we inflect that enterprise has touched um, with finance or policy or grant money over 600,000 units of housing like that scale so it really appealed to me the idea of If I could have a hand in making some of those or all of those more sustainable, more beautiful, more thoughtful, uh, more beneficial to their communities, that was really doing something.
1: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I think, uh, (laughs) I mean, it's just a. Uh, it's an obvious one, you know, it's like this is, this is so this, to have that opportunity and to be able to make that impact. It's like is such a such a wonderful way to bring together a lot of these values. And, and it's just it's so cool to hear you talk about it. And in, in retrospect, um, I, I guess. OK, so a couple more questions about sort of your path. I, I want to ask in particular, if you look back to that time when you were starting to get into the work, how did you define architecture for yourself? Like what was it that made you think about uh, affordable housing and community development in that way um, that led you there?
2: Maybe because I came to architecture a little bit later, you know, with a, a degree in comparative le- literature as opposed to maybe early training in architecture. I think I've always thought about, kind of the larger picture. I heard you guys just chatting earlier about the idea that sometimes architects think of architecture as just a building. And, you know, Kara was talking about how it's really also about the site. And um, I even think maybe the word site is not quite in sync with how I have seen architecture. I think that architecture is sort of a reflection of our values and our communities. And that, you know, good architecture is kind of something that really um, speaks to larger needs in, in a community setting, whether that, you know, absolutely it can be a really amazing museum in a big city. But I tend to think of architecture on a much more, I guess, granular, level and my 20 years working with community development groups around the country has really ensured that I understand that a building is a means to a much larger end and that the beauty and quality of that building matters a lot because each new building or each renovation is kind of a symbol and and speaks to the dignity and aspirations of a community, but that invariably the issues that people care about most are how well does their community work? Is there housing for everyone? Are there good schools? You know, Is it easy to go to the market? Can you get to work well? Are there issues plaguing the community around their sort of economic status and job creation? So I've always really seen architecture as kind of, I guess, fabric. <laughs> more than object
1: that's super cool i love that um and and it fits also with that sort of way that you talk about you know the way in which it's applied in communities that uh, it's something i actually talk to my students a lot about is this there's a there's sort of the what problem are you solving and then there's the solution you find and sometimes architecture focuses so much on a solution that it forgets what problem it's trying to solve you know um, and so you seem to be someone that's managed to really ground your work entirely in the problem, very much so in the problem, which um, I, I hate to, not to define them as problems and rather than opportunities, but you know what I mean, it's a sort of that the angle that we look at our work through. Um, okay, so my last question for you is about your recent transition to mass design group. Tell us about what um, what made you do that and what you're working on now. and um, I'm just excited to hear about the next chapter.
2: Oh yeah, it's so thrilling. I I met Mass Design in 2010. I was at the Structures for Inclusion Conference at Howard University with a group of Rose Fellows. That was kind of the annual conference where so many people in the larger what we called public interest design movement would come together every year and Michael Murphy was there presenting on the Butaro Hospital project in Northern Rwanda, which was still under construction at this time. And for me, it was as if like this light went off for since I had been involved in that movement from 2000 to 2010, I would say we were, you know, a lot of ideas, a lot of um, real aspirations around community-based work, but a lot of the, Uh, results of our work were relatively small, you know, which is okay. We were creating a point of view and a set of capabilities, which I think is really important. But when Mass arrived on the scene, it felt like, wow, we can bring all of these aspirations, but do it at a scale that we hadn't really dreamed of before. In this case, with the development of this one incredibly impactful hospital-serving 400,000 people who hadn't had access to medical care and doing it in such a, you know an incredibly beautiful way. And since that time, I became friends um, with Mass and cheerleader, connector. We moved offices in together into the same office in Boston about six or seven years ago with Enterprise and Mass. And then I joined their board. So I've been kind of waiting for this opportunity Once I wrapped up and and published this book at Enterprise and we had such a strong team and Enterprise in place, so excited to take the big step to Mass and I just could not be more thrilled to join this firm, which is now 140 people around the globe. And um, in addition to the incredible work, we have four hospitals um, that are opening this year which is amazing. We also, uh, in addition to architecture, of course, we have landscape architecture, interior design, furniture design, we have a build group in Rwanda. Um, So we're doing our own uh, GC and construction. And um, the aspirations of this group are just incredible. Brilliant thinkers, fantastic designers, really working to take on, some of the hardest issues out there, and to do it with uh, nonprofit partners from all over the world, so it's been an incredible privilege.
1: Sounds like fun.
0: <laughs> yeah, it's really exciting, Katie. I'm thrilled that you're there, and I'm like many people. I've followed Mass for a while, um, and I think the the direction of the work is incredibly exciting. So I can't wait to see where all of that goes with you. Um, I have a question for you about this term leadership cultivation, which is a part of your bio, and I want to know how that is part of what you have done and what you do now.
2: Oh, absolutely. I think that um, that cultivating the leadership in others is about the most powerful thing we can do. There's, as you all are taking on week after week, some of the thorniest issues <laughs> that we have. And, and where is this kind of leadership going to come from? I would say that my generation, maybe our generation, hasn't actually really achieved the, the level of uh, systematic changes that we need to create a just society. And I think that many young people today are have a fundamentally different perspective. They are sort of born with a, an instinct around protesting injustice of all kinds that we're seeing right now. And I think this kind of disruptive energy is going to be so important and so uh, impactful over time. But you know, on so many levels I think that cultivating leadership that could mean within the profession of architecture, which has been an incredible part of my life as the director of the Rose fellowship for many years, I got to recruit um, and mentor this whole new generation of leaders who are coming to architecture to really uh, leverage design to serve com- the communities that need it most and the idea that people have these incredible aspirations, so many people get into architecture because they want to make the world a better place, but there's something about the way the profession is set up, which isn't allowing that right now. And so for me to be able to uh, be part of attracting the inspiration of uh, young and emerging designers who want to dedicate their lives to a socially just practice. And then, you know, in trying working hard to empower them along the way has been amazing, and you know, gives these incredible dividends over time. There's just nothing to compare to having kind of a, a squad of uh, compatriots who are all kind of in this together. So it's really been a pr- a privilege for me.
0: That's so cool, Katie. And I've um, I've met some of those people that you are cultivating in that way and I I love thinking of that them all out in the world spreading that um, approach and um, and spreading the possibilities of coming to architecture in a different way to towards those better world ideas that you're that you're mentioning and that brought them there in the first place I love that Um, I wanted to ask what you are most proud of accomplishing in your work life. And this might be a good place to talk a little bit about your books, your new books.
2: (laughs) Yeah, thank you for the chance. I, you know, I think I, I uh, I told a friend this morning that I feel this week we've just launched In Bohemia, a memoir of Love, Loss and Kindness. And two weeks ago, we launched Design with Love at Home in America. And I have this beautiful feeling of um, pride and pleasure in the work. These two books, it's, I'm sure it's rare to publish two books at the same time, but they're kind of a match set in a way. Through the Rose Fellowship, we've talked for so many years about integrating your personal mission and your professional mission. And that when you can do that, you really have kind of an engine um, guiding you at work. I heard recently from the director of the African Leadership University, Fred Swaniker. Mass is building a new campus in Kigali for ALU. And um, Fred Swaniker tells his students, declare your mission, not your major. And I just absolutely love this idea. So for me, Writing and architecture are all kind of part of a larger, I would say, mission for me. They're different skill sets. And then in Bohemia and Design with Love are both speaking about the things I care about, which is certainly the power of home and how important it is for me and my family and understanding the layers of home how it gives you identity, what, it, what is its history, how a home can kind of hold you when you know, you're in crisis, how um, a home can inspire you by its beauty and its architecture. But that while I tell that personal story, I'm telling the stories through Design With Love, communities around the country where people have those same aspirations for themselves and each other, and trying to connect the dots between the things that motivate me around the importance of home and then trying to put that into almost like a professional setting. What are the the policies that we need to correct to make sure that everyone has a home? What are the design skills we need to bring to lift up and empower local voices? What is the kind of architecture and resilience and sustainability, technology and aspirations we need to bring to poor communities, especially, who are facing the most adverse of the environmental hazards. So how do we kind of bring all these things together? So it's been a real, real just deep joy to be able to bring these two parts of myself, I guess, in kind of an integrated way out into the world.
0: That's wonderful, Katie. Um, I have to say that Design with Love, too, is, I think, such an instructive and beautiful look at what the possibilities of one path could look like, uh, what a career could look like if someone's interested in that part of of this field. And um, it it struck me after getting it into my hands at last uh, (laughs) that um, it really is... I mean, I want immediately wanted it to send it to the architecture students in my lives, my life, um, just to make sure they understood the richness of what you can do in that part of this field, because um, it's really beautiful. It's really well done. And it's it's just it makes it seem very tangible that 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 uh, that work, which I think when people hear com- even community design and affordable housing, those terms just do not convey what the richness of what, what that program has done, frankly. Um, So I just really commend you on that. And of course, in Bohemia is just exquisite um, and I love it. Um, And I hope people will read it because it's such a, it's such a wonderful melding of place and home with a personal story of, of love and loss. But I also wanted to ask you, is there a project that you're working on right now that you'd like listeners to know about?
2: Um, Yeah absolutely. We have so many things going on at Mass. Um, I think one of the growing areas of our practice is affordable housing so that's been really exciting to me as you can imagine. Um, Mass has been working in the Boston area in particular with a couple of really ambitious mission-based developers including um, one special group called Two Life who had a Rose Fellow uh, back in a couple of years ago, helped them really amplify their design aspirations. But we're also starting some new projects in Brooklyn, um, working with the New York City Housing Authority and Vital Brooklyn um, with a group called Canva Housing Ventures. So excited to be growing our housing platform. That, that's been a goal and, and a dream. We're also, um, many of you may have followed what kind of I launched into when I first got to Mass, which was the work that we've been doing around design for infection control. I just started, as you mentioned, in February, had a few weeks in the office, and we all moved home on March 12th, and on March 15th, at about 8, 58 a.m., the phone rang from Boston Healthcare for the Homeless, and they needed um, us to look at their plans. You know, they were gonna erect some Temporary tent clinics, and you know, would we just have a look for them? They're a longtime partner of ours. So essentially, we started on this scope of work that was applying ten years of uh, design understanding of design for infection control in situations of tuberculosis and Ebola and COVID cholera. And so even in the emerging science uh, or lack of science at the time, we were able to partner with so many of our medical practitioners and develop sort of rules of thumb that would apply to keeping people safe um, from infection in COVID. And over the course of the spring, we did that first in temporary tent clinics, but then with senior housing, housing in Indian country, restaurants, prisons, medical settings, schools. So that's been an incredible scope of work. The, those resources have been downloaded um, over 20,000 times. So it was an incredible way for me to get to know Mass and um, from in terms of like, how does it work and how can we, how do, how do we bring our point of view and our experience as a kind of core capability around buildings being built to heal. Um, The idea that recognizing that buildings will hurt or buildings will heal, but then doing it with such a range of the practitioners who have expertise in all of these areas, Um, from food systems as you all were chatting about before to um, incarceration and the wide diversity of things. So it's been It's been a really thrilling first uh, six months there, I would say.
1: Can Can I just say, I think my favorite part of that story, the part that inspires me the most is the fact that you were able to participate in real time with communities that were making decisions in that way that we did at the beginning of the pandemic. But I just, I think architecture is so often thought of as this very specific act of creating a building. And, and you know, that story is just so, so illustrative of the fact that we only think about it that way because our brains have blocked our, out the other opportunities that architecture has to help, right? Or to participate in, in urgent needs and spontaneous urgent needs that society has. And sometimes we talk about that kind of thing when we think about stuff like disaster housing deployment. But it's still to me sometimes feels like these very static sort of step one, step two, step three. We are going to design and create a building. Um, but what we're talking about is just so different from that and so out of that box that um, it's really inspiring to hear. And um, I hope others can take that inspiration and think about the ways in which Architects can participate in different types of questions that need to get answered. Um, I think that,
2: um, Lindsay, we need to really think about the business model of our architecture because we're set up, you know, here we are, we're architects, right? We understand things like structure. (laughs) Structure allows for certain outcomes. We know this to be true. But in the architecture field, um, the structure of our firms are service oriented and that means that we're designing certain types of building for certain types of clients and i think one of the things that has been most disruptive about mass um alan ricks our co-founder with michael murphy says that the design of our practice has been the longest standing design project of mass so we have intentionally and continue to evolve our ability to create a firm that will work in partnership with a wide variety of different kinds of expertise and um, both institutional partners, but thought partners, uh, nonprofit partners, local, global, so that we can be in partnership with people. It's not, you know, yes, Boston Healthcare for the Homeless called us with a, I guess with an architecture Job for them, but that's because we've had a long standing relationship with them and they understand that we bring the whole of our organization. We also are constructed as a nonprofit, and while 80 to 90 percent of our income, depending on the year, comes from fee for service work, the other 10 to 20 percent comes from philanthropy. And so that's important to our model. It means we never stop and say, we don't say to Boston Healthcare for the Homeless, um, hold on, let me send you a contract and let's agree on a price. We say, okay, let's get to work. And you know, we've been able so far to construct a business model, which allows us to be immediately responsive to the needs of our partners.
0: That's so it, cool. Yeah, that is so interesting and so crucial. And it strikes me that there are many aspects of Um, scaling and progress on the sustainability side that require that restructuring as well. There's just, I mean, all the progress we want to make is occasionally or always um, restricted by the the conventional structures of that service model that you were describing. Yeah,
1: Yeah, it's so true. And I mean, that that actually takes us into our last section of questions that we want to Discuss with you, Katie, which is sort of about the industry and, and your thoughts about where it needs to go. So I wonder if we can ask you, I I mean, this, you you can kind of go anywhere you want to with this. But um, one of the things that we like to talk about is the difference between an industry and a movement and the fact that we are in many ways, as you were talking about, like bound to the service model of what we do. But you are clearly showing that that is not a bounds that we need to feel too constrained by. So can you tell us about what you, how you think about yourself and the work in reference to the idea of being a part of the industry versus part of the movement? Do you see those as distinct? Do you see them as the same, etc.
2: Yeah, I think Lindsay, I would, I would compare the industry with Um, the idea of your major in college and I would compare the movement with the idea of declaring a mission and um, you know I think it's an important distinction because an industry that loses sight of its mission is meaningless right
1: yeah Um,
2: we need to be very clear on Um, the aspirations of our movement. And then then I believe we need to be tactical and smart about deploying various streams of our industries to be able to achieve or um, work towards achieving that larger mission. And so I I mean, I participate in the industry in a variety of ways, and I've been supported by the industry in a variety of ways. Um, So I feel an allegiance, but I don't think that, for me, the industry itself is not as relevant to the movement, which is really where I think we need to collectively come to grips with the fact that, you know, we're fundamentally failing Um, in our larger goals, that we can have businesses and we can have buildings that are succeeding perhaps on their own, but that we're kind of fundamentally failing on the larger larger goals. And for me, that would also not only have to involve a kind of attitude towards sustainability and resilience and um, understanding our climate challenges, but also have it equally about understanding the sort of social and human dimension. And it won't be a surprise to you that I would start with, you know, first of all, an idea about home and making sure that we have a home and homes for everyone, (laughs) whatever they look like, you know, it it matters not to me. And it's not about being prescriptive. Communities and individuals can define how they want to live, but I think as a larger society, we need to really double down on a commitment to having housing as a fundamental human right. If we haven't learned during this pandemic, the primacy of home where, you know, it's not just that you live there or sleep there, but you work there, you Zoom school there, you know, you exercise there, like whatever it is, that's it. And so at this moment, we're looking at an existing housing crisis, and then word on the street is that there could be eight to ten million people facing eviction over the next two months so um I think you know if that's not a part of the movement, then yeah, I'm in a different movement, but um I think all these things have to be really connected, and I absolutely believe that we need to disrupt our current platform. We need to, we talked earlier about uh, leadership development. We need diverse kinds of leadership coming from diverse kinds of people of different generations and positions and not all young. Um, I think in the communities in which I work, so many of the older people are the ones who are taking such incredible stewardship of their communities too. So yeah, I feel a, a fierce commitment to the movement and also some impatience, I would say, around um, where we are and where we need to go.
1: Yeah, that's a, that's a theme for our podcast it seems <laughs> and that impatience we get it and when, I'm I'm w- there with you. Um, well, okay, uh, I think we only have time for a couple more questions and I want to get back to something that you Um, obviously write about and talk about a lot, which is love and, and ask you what role you think love plays in our progress on sustainability and design work.
2: Thank you so much for asking me that question. You know, when I applied to the Loeb Fellowship, in I guess 2018, I wrote my application, the question, the guiding question of my application was, what role do love and kindness play in urban design? And, um, you know, I got a little pushback over that. It's not, it's not usually a kind of terminology that people are using in design school. But I think that, um, well, let me break it down a little bit. I'm gonna start first with, you know, connecting this back to just our individual selves. Um, you know, in Bohemia is a love story. It's um, it's about romantic love. Um, it's about uh, my love with my partner, and also the love shared by two women who built my house back in 1907. They were born in the late 1850s and pioneering women, and their love, and then their grief story. And I think that when you experience profound love, you understand the transformative power of love. You know, all things become possible somehow with with love. You know, forgiveness is possible. Um, uh, Ambition and aspirations is possible. The kinds of hopes that you have for yourself get exponentially expanded and You know, I think that same idea, of course, goes to what Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. would call agape love or um, the beloved community. An idea not about romantic love, but around a love that is sort of for the common good. And um, in Dr. King's version of the beloved community, hunger, Uh, Poverty and homelessness would not be tolerated. And so you have to look around and kind of ask ourselves, we tolerate hunger, we tolerate homelessness, and we tolerate poverty. We've come to kind of somehow think that that's okay. And so I think that we can't build ourselves out of that one as long as our mission does not include kind of creating a beloved community, then of course we'll never get there, right? So I think that we need to bring this kind of um, commitment. I think that's the other thing about love that we know is that love begs for commitment and it does that uh, on an individual level, you know, an interpersonal level. And it also can do that, I believe, on a societal level. And um, so the kinds of work that I have witnessed across the United States of America through my travels with the Rose Fellowship is, is love. My, my friend um, texted me, heard this phrase, uh, work is love in action. Or maybe it's love is work in action. It hardly matters. The point is that a commitment to making something better for somebody else, whether that's at a personal level or a society level, that only love can really commit you to doing that work or, um, you know, your job can't commit you to that. It takes something deeper to go all the way. So I do believe that love is, um, well, I'll use Kira's word from your opening chat. I believe that love is the antidote right now for the kind of despair that we feel, for a sense of hopelessness that we feel. I think we feel a lot of fear right now about what's gonna be happening over the next few months. And, um, and we feel a lot of anxiety. And I think that love is the antidote. And I think we should take that seriously then. I think we should practice love i think we should teach love i think we should have curriculums around love and i think we should design with love and um i think it would be a very powerful way for us to go forward
0: that's beautiful katie um i it's just really well put and i'm so happy that you are sort of putting it out there in that way and i feel like I can't think of any endeavor that I'm involved with that couldn't benefit from more of that and from being more intentional about how we bring that into that work. It's so great. Um, I have one last question for you, um, and that is about um, who you're most inspired by these days in terms of leaders or others in any walk of life. Who inspires you?
2: Um, Yeah, thanks for that wonderful question. I think that, you know, the uh, most in, sort of inspiring people right now are the people who have been um, really hitting the streets in in protest, the people who are organizing on the ground for the Black Lives Matter movement. It's been incredible to see the, you know, Brian Lee and D. Nichols and the entire Multi hundred person crew of designers protest really come together in this moment. I said last night, someone asked me what was one of the books that I've enjoyed reading most recently. And I really loved reading When They Call You a Terrorist by Patrice Kahn Coolers about the, um, it's a memoir about her community in Los Angeles where so many of the ideas behind the Black Lives Matter movement were kind of gestating. And she speaks about uh, the way she kind of is able to give uh, narrative and story and color to the words Black Lives Matter and how that evolved, I think has been really inspiring. I think when we think about movement building, we see there a movement that has not been built around uh, you know, leaders, but around leadership from so many. So I think we have a lot to learn uh, both from that movement and by joining with it. Um, so I think that's one of the things that really is most inspirational in 2020.
1: That's a wonderful way to end. Um, thanks for drawing our attention to it. And, and thanks for all that you're doing. It's, it's so inspiring. And so, uh, I don't know, um, so reframing in ways that I feel like is actually very actionable for other people. So, uh, so thanks for taking the time to talk to us about it. We really appreciate it.
2: Really just a pleasure to be here in conversation with you all. I really enjoyed it and I love your podcast. So thanks so much for including me in it.
1: Of course, Um, it's been a total pleasure. Um, Yeah, so thank you and thanks to everyone for listening. That is it for us this week on Women in Sustainability, Design the Future. Uh, Thanks again to Acuity for hosting and for you all. Uh, Please leave us a review on Apple. It really matters and it helps people to find us. Stay safe. We'll see you next week.